When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's podcast is an episode from the first year of the podcast, way back at the first year, one of the first ones we had with Andrew Coverdale, who at the time was at Louisville Trinity. He won 11 state championships there as the offensive coordinator, and in 2019, moved to Cincinnati St. Xavier. There, he's also won another state championship as the offensive coordinator. In this episode, he shares the insight that he's learned over the years, the things that have helped him become a successful offensive coordinator. He's definitely become a friend in coaching and someone I've learned from, and I know in this podcast you'll learn from him as well. Here's my interview with Coach Andrew Coverdale. Our guest today is somebody who is a friend of mine and someone who I like to talk football with, Andrew Coverdale. Andrew Coverdale is currently the offensive coordinator at Trinity High School in Louisville, Kentucky, wearing two stints on the Shamrock staff. He's been a part of five state championship teams, including a state championship in 2016. Before assuming his present position in 2006, he served as the head football coach at Castle, Indiana High School for three seasons. He also was on the staffs at Brown County. McCutcheon, and Noblesville, all in Indiana, as well as serving on the staff as an assistant coach at Taylor University. He's a 1993 graduate of LSU and is widely respected for his thorough understanding of offensive football and his ability to teach players at all competitive levels. Andrew, great to have you here. Welcome to the Coaching Coordinator Show. Keith, it's always good to talk with you, my friend. Uh, I want to just let you know something here and, and let our audience know uh, what, what of an influence you've had on me. Um, you are the most detailed football guy I know out there. And this goes back to when I was getting my start at the high school level. Uh, I remember going to a Glazier clinic in Cincinnati, and I think you had like six or eight different sessions where you were speaking. At the time, I had already read all of your your bunch attack and your quick volume or quick passing volumes one, two, and three. I had the videos that went along with it. I just wanted to go and learn more from you. Those books and, and were something that I revisited almost every offseason in, in my career to look at some things you were going to do because they were just so full of detail and great coaching. And uh, those those eight hours for me made a difference, whether you knew it or not. So I, I, I want to thank you for that. I thought it was a neat opportunity when years later we were at Ball State Clinic and I was speaking there and, and you were in the audience and you asked me some questions afterwards. I thought it was it was really neat how it had come full circle. And I know from there our, our friendship developed and we, we share uh, 
ideas on the game now all the time. So uh, it's it's been a neat thing, and I appreciate that about our game in general, that that's the kind of brotherhood we have in coaching. But uh, just wanted to say thank you to you, Coach. Well, I appreciate that, and the the inverse is completely true. I remember, um, I actually remember sitting in Stan Parrish's office together and talking wide zone, <coughs> I think, at the time. Yep. And, um, you, one of the questions I know that you're probably going to ask, uh, not to jump ahead of the curve here, but in terms of some of the most important advice I ever got, uh, Dan Robinson, very, very, very early in my coaching career, really impressed upon me how the game is so much bigger than any of us. And it's our responsibility to love the game by always giving back and never acting like we have the corner market on ideas. And, you know, anything I did as a 24-year-old or a 27-year-old author probably came from a million sources. And so that that advice is one of the things that served me awfully well is, is the community that gets created. You know, when you, when you loosely hold the ideas that you've been handed and share them with other coaches, that's where a lot of the best stuff's really at in our world for sure. yeah definitely definitely well coach let's get into it here and let's let's go back to the beginning for you what made you want to be a football coach you know, I don't know if it's one thing or another. I would say probably the the entryway for me was the, the less important part of it. And then as I walked through that entryway, the things that really mattered to me most now became evident. So uh, even as a young kid, I was always fascinated by the, um, the tactical part of it, the strategic part of it. I grew up in the late 70s, early 80s, falling in love with the Air Coriel Chargers and, and wanted to understand what that was about and what made them who they were. Uh, uh, I was not a very good player at all. I actually did not play beyond eighth grade, uh, which caused a lot of problems for me later on. But um, I had a high school coach who was sort of willing to indulge all my snot-nosed questions about the technical parts of the game. And I was, he allowed me really a, a lot of access to the high school program as a student manager. And then I did the same thing as an equipment guy at LSU and got to brush up against a lot of just really, really great teachers at that time, even though we were not very good as a team at that time time those collective experiences i guess just invited me further and further into what the profession was all about beyond just the initial uh x's and o's sort of um lure of it uh, and, and i just had positive experiences all, all the way along the way that continued to encourage me where did you get your start coaching well, I got my degree from LSU in 1993 and came back home where I grew up in the Indianapolis area. And to be a teacher in Indiana, the certification's a lot different. So I had to take postgraduate classes to get my Indiana teaching license. And social studies teachers at that time were a dime a dozen. So I decided to go to Purdue. And basically, I just started calling because I had no network, no connections. I had, you know, I wasn't a player. And so I just started to uh, contact programs in the area to see if any of them had had a use for, you know, a 23-year-old with no background and no connections who wanted to coach. And there was a guy by the name of A.J. Rickard, who's a Hall of Fame coach in Indiana high school football. They had an extremely experienced veteran staff that just won a state championship. And he said, if you want to work, we'll put you to work. And um, I I fancied myself at that time as this uh, passing game expert, which is ridiculous for a 23-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, and the best thing he did is he assigned me to work with his offensive line coach. So I was the assistant varsity offensive line coach. I made $64 that season. Uh, but I, what I learned in terms of the staff and the program and, and, and the offensive line position in particular was just, it was a gold mine. And so I was a substitute teacher, a college student, and a volunteer assistant for a high school in Indiana. 
as your career progressed, what would you say were some other key things in your learning as a coach that helped in your development? That's a very good question. I think there are several, obviously. I think working with Dan Robinson that next year at Northwestern High School in Kokomo really exposed me to what was possible. It gave me a whole new framework for for looking at the game, for um, just how to be a dynamic teacher, what it looks like to get. Uh, it's one of those moments where when you, when you see Dan get in front of a room and do an installation or do a teaching, uh, you instantly say, you know, that's that's sort of what I want to be when I grow up. I've had that experience four or five times. Dan in a classroom setting is certainly one of those people. His systematics are unparalleled. His imagination is really unparalleled. Uh, I worked for a guy named Kevin Wright initially just uh, for one year, and then later on he took me to Trinity High School in Louisville with him. And Kevin is, is one of the best I've seen at really understanding what makes young men tick. And so I really grew in terms of, of connecting with my players by being with him and obviously him taking me to Louisville Trinity, which is where I spent the majority of my career, was a, a major turning point. And then, you know, I'm very fortunate at, at this point to have a boss, Bob Beatty, who's, who followed Kevin to Trinity, who has a system and who ha- he, he brought a framework with him to Trinity that was very similar to Dan's. And together we've been able to build out that framework. And it's a framework that football has grown and changed and all the different things that each group of kids brings to each individual year. And, and um, he's been a tremendous influence as well in any number of ways. And I think we, one of the things that we have together is sort of a team that runs the offenses. We get the best of both worlds in, in the sense that he is the um, – there's a tension that's a real positive tension. He is he has the big picture. He has execution and precision and discipline. And what I bring to it is sort of the creativity piece from a background of dance. So the tension and marriage of those two ends has really kind of, I think, given us the best of all worlds in the 15 years we've worked together. And I know that coach allows you to to really drive that in terms of of the scheme and the concepts and trust you to put that all together. And for you, it starts with a philosophy. What's the philosophy of your offense? Well, as it's gone on, I think it's become more people driven. We want from. So, for example, you would say from a technical standpoint, we're a multiple formation, multiple personnel group, multiple tempo, multiple launch point team that wants to build from a small core of runs and protections and really blossom that out to equip our kids to take advantage of whatever presents itself. So we want to have a manageable number of skills that can present itself in an infinite number of ways and allow us to use our best players in as many leveraged situations as we can. So that's, I suppose, the the technical end of it. We draw very heavily from NFL influences, although we're not an NFL offense. We draw very heavily from uh, the University of Louisville. Coach Petrino's structure is very uh, informs a lot of what we do for for sure. But for me, what what I really want, and I listened to you talk to um, Doug Maddox, and a lot of what he said really resonated. We're trying to create a collaboration among a room, and that room is led by me, and it's led by our coaches. But but eventually, we want to create, and, and culture becomes almost one of those over use words to the point where you have to redefine it but we want to we want to have an environment where everybody feels full ownership and full input into what we're doing and and i thought Deb said it really well when he talked about having a collective consciousness we haven't used that phrase but it's very it's very indicative of what we're trying to create and i think a lot of that started with with even how bill walsh would would build his units Obviously, he leads it, he orchestrates it, he drives it, but there's a belief in an ownership that you start
heart building from the very first day that then expresses itself on the field in game night. How do you build that collective consciousness that Dub talked about or the the word, you know, everybody uses culture? What specific things are you doing as a coach to build that within your room? I think something that I really learned this, this last offseason or something we started doing that's really helped is, and maybe Urban Meyer has helped me with this more than anybody else is, we define everything very explicitly for our kids, and we try to break it down in such a way that it means something to them, and they can own it, and they can they can recite it back to us, and we can identify where we see it and where we don't see it. So, for example, we talk about culture ourselves. We talk from the very beginning about what is it. We talk about our vision as an offense this is our vision. Uh, then culture is the expectations that we hold each other to every day that allow us to pursue that vision. And so then we talk about, uh, you know, for us this year, because of the kids we had, toughness was sort of our byword this year. Well, toughness is one of those football coach words that may or may not mean anything to the 16-year-olds in the room that you're trying to connect with. So we gave toughness a very specific definition. We said toughness is my willingness to push beyond emotional uh, physical and mental discomfort to do my job out of love for my teammates. And so then we say, okay, what are examples? What are the decisions that you make that create this toughness? And so what we try to do is have a, a very central, understandable, defined message that we can then reinforce in absolutely every setting that we're in. So when we're in the meeting room, how do we conduct ourselves? How do we respond? Where? And so we manufacture, in, in this case, with the toughness issue, we manufactured a lot of different situations throughout the summer and the off season. And then we would go back and say, here's, here's where toughness did show itself. Here's where it didn't show itself. So I think all those things factor in. We talk about valuing smart and how smart has nothing to do with an IQ. Smart is a choice. And here are the choices you make. And we try to create a great pride that our kids have in knowing more about the game and how that translates to playing faster. So I think a lot of it just has to do with being real clear in definable terms with what you want and then finding all kinds of ways in the everyday comings and goings of football to reinforce it. And for me, that maybe means saying fewer things, but doing a better job of defining and reinforcing those things. Coach, thanks for sharing that. That was that was great stuff. I know teaching is very important to you too, and, and uh, you've done a great job in explaining a lot of those things. And, and then just seeing you do it on some of the videos you put back, you know, way back when, the attention to detail was incredible. What things are you and your staff doing now that best teach your systems and give them that understanding and like you said that collective consciousness that develops you've touched on it a lot the, the flipped coaching is a big deal and that connects to the culture so we've over time created a culture and we've shown them the benefit of you don't show up on a monday june is really important for us we get through all of our installation once in june so that when we put pads on we've it's review in a sense but you don't show up on a monday not having reviewed the the huddle installation that you were sent over the weekend it's just not accepted behavior and but again the, you know there's the carrot and the stick and the carrot to that is we want we want the guy down to our lowest level student to feel great pride and great reinforcement of knowing the details of the game so we do stupid stuff in meetings like they seem stupid but they're really important like uh, kids really want to get a smart point smart point means you raise your hand and you have the correct answer down to the detail exactly where we want it and 
everybody does one clap for smart points. So a lot of little things on the positive on the, and on the, you know, the, the corrective side of uh, just setting a high bar for your learning and setting a high bar for being able to articulate things a certain way. And I think the, the flipped part of it gives us a better chance to really zero in on their learning style because they're not going to get it all the first time. And that's not our expectation, but at least we can start to have a conversation and we have raw material to work with because all of us are trying to connect the what to the why and the <clears throat> the what to the how because the how is what wins you the game, not the what. You know, understanding your assignments may be a tenth of the battle, but you can't get to the what without the why and you can't get to the how without the what. So I think the, the, the flipped part of it really gives us a great advantage or at least a great starting point. We probably walk through more than the average high school team just because it gives them a chance to visualize it. I think that's an important part of it. We put our, our kids in pressure situations in every avenue we can, including the meeting room. And a lot of times it has to do with getting a feel for your kids and which ones need that the most. We had a borderline JV type of kid that we thought could maybe blossom. And so every single time there was a hard question about a split or a concept or an adjustment, we would put him on the spot. And initially he didn't handle it very well, but pretty soon he got to understand that every Every single time he was in the meeting room, he was going to answer. He was going to be asked a question, so he needed to be ready, and uh, he embraced it. And he became he, he really developed in terms of that part of the game. So I uh, I think the flip part of it is a big deal. I think constantly driving the the why behind the what, and then translating the what to the how. In other words, giving them a big picture of of what we want, and then their technique becomes an extension of that. I think all those things are important. Coach, something that's not talked about very often is how do you do a walk through. I've seen these run the gamuts of teams who do very well and how they put together a walkthrough and then other teams who uh, when you watch them, you think, wow, what a waste of time. What are, are some of the expectations and what's the key to running a great walkthrough for a team? I think that's a great question. And, and honestly, I, I think we can do it better. I, I have a picture for what I want our walkthroughs to look like. And sometimes we're, we're closer to that picture than others. And I think a big part of the battle is constantly showing them your kids buy-in and your kids' leadership is either your biggest asset or your biggest deterrent. And if the kids understand very explicitly how it makes them play faster. Uh, that's a big deal. We do a lot more, uh, more than any point at any time since I've coached. We talk about playing with your eyes and what your eyes should be doing at every single moment. So that's a big emphasis in the walkthrough. I think we try to give it a situational emphasis as much as possible. We've been more structured at some times than others. I think in the best case scenario, every single time that you snap before you call the play, John Rice actually taught me this 15 years ago when he was with us at Trinity. He would have the def- they would clap their hands to indicate the play was going to start and then everybody would point to their assignments. Well, ideally if all of our coaches are there and we're running like we should be, every coach is next to his position player. And when the ball snapped, that player says, I have a tight split top of the numbers. My release is a burst release five by five. I straighten and I make a tight turn with my eyes on the corners inside shoulder, whatever the, the case may be, not, might be. So they are verbally reciting to you what their expectation is before they actually walk the play. We're not always that good, but I would like to be that good. I would like to make it go snap you in a little 
little more efficient. Uh, one good thing we have done is if a kid's in the rotation, if he is, uh, let's say he's not your starting slot, but he's your third inside receiver, we'll have a kid that we're trying to develop and bring along. We'll have them actually stand behind his counterpart and mimic whatever happens in front of him so that he's actively involved in the walkthrough. Honestly, the biggest thing that we have to guard against because we have so many kids in our program is extra guys standing around with side conversations that become a distraction. And, and that's probably the biggest thing that we have to fight. Yeah, definitely. That's always a challenge. You got to keep everybody engaged in those situations. It certainly sounds like that's a great picture. And thanks for sharing how you sure. envision a, a walkthrough. You guys have had a record setting year at Trinity, breaking the record for state titles and and you guys had an incredible performance 56 points in the 6a state championship game over this season too is the first time you guys have been 15 and 0 since 2011 so you you obviously brought things together what would you look back on that and say here's a play that is very important to us to be able to to go through and have the success we had I would say, and I don't think this is a secret to anybody who watched this on video, historically our running game has been wide zone and then a hybrid of either the, the GT counter play or the tackle pull through dart play. Those have been real good to us. Some years we've thrown in tight zone. So last year in the off season, we hired a new offensive line coach and we actually went to Eastern Kentucky. Terry Heffernan is the offensive line coach there. He, we knew him from his days at Michigan. We knew him from his days at the Lions. He really clinked us up on one back power and we had never been a, uh, a one back power team before the tempo it gave us. We liked the sort of A-gap to A-gap attitude it gave us. There are some years, you know, theoretically wide zone should hit in the A-gap at times, but we didn't really have an A-gap fastball. And it just really came together for us as some some games it was our number one run. Other games it was our number two run. The play action off of it, the RPOs that are connected to it, it just fit a whole bunch of things really well that, that rounded us out very well as an offense. And we didn't know what to expect with this group. We had five new offensive lines. We, we really graduated everybody but from last year except our two tight ends and so we had no notion of what to expect from our offensive line but we ended up being a really good running team early in the year especially and one back power was a big big part of it strangely enough coach whether you're looking at the one back power your wide zone or other things you do how do you begin your process for game planning each week you know, it, it's interesting. It, it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a two phase deal. So uh, you start with the negatives, and this will this will sound really broad based, but you start with the negatives, and you look at all the problems that they can present. And so you you look at their core structure, and I learned this from Dan. It, some of it is about the actual fronts and the actual blitzes, but what you're really trying to look for behind it all is the personality and the and what sort of makes it work. Because they may you know they may be running this pressure and this slant versus this team, but it may not make any sense for them to run those things against you. So you can't just strictly be limited to your charts. You have to try to understand behind it, what are their triggers for how they adjust? How does the defensive coordinator think? How is he programmed these guys to key things and see the field and respond? What tools do they have in their toolbox? And so we try to look at those things. We obviously look for players that jump off the, the screen as problems, linebackers that, that run windows and can create negative plays or pass rushers that are a specific problem or safeties that break on the ball. So you're identifying problems in terms of structure and philosophy and calls like pressures and things like that. And, and also, I guess, along those lines, this has been important to us. Within their structure, what could they do that we're not seeing on, 
on video because a lot of times we're people's summer project, we're people's Super Bowl or whatever. So if you're an odd team, even if you don't show it on film, I'm going to assume, or an underfront team, I'm going to assume that you have the ability to bring uh, America's field fire zone and we're going to practice against it. So within your structure, what are the real difficult things you can do either because of what's on tape or because of your personnel or because of what your, your philosophy and your structure could allow you to do? So that takes the first part of the weekend. And then the second part of the weekend has to do with, okay, now what within our structure is going to cause problems for them? This offseason, I actually did something that I've never done before. I did kind of a, a map of our offense. And the reason I did it is because we had a player move in who'd never been in our system before, but he was a remarkable talent, and we had to get him up to speed really quickly. So I represented our whole offense visually in terms of here's our running game, here's our screens, here's our here's our play action pass, here is our here's our RPO stuff, and here's how it overlaps with the running game. And that visual really helped me sort of understand what we have in our arsenal. So very quickly, I, I can look at that map now and see, okay, this is obviously a fit. This isn't a fit. And then I would say the next thing that I I do is I see things in terms of formations. And we tend to try to solve problems with formations more so than we will scheming things. If we can if we can solve a problem or create a problem with, with an alignment or a movement, I would much rather do that than, than creating a new blocking scheme or creating a new line call. We'd like to keep it pretty clean for the offensive linemen. So that sort of visual in mind and, and, and those problems in mind, we can trim down our overall inventory pretty quickly. And then what I try Try to do, and I'm not as good at this as I should be, is that we sort of model the, the Bruce Arians dirty 30, and what I try to do is I try to come up with 10 run run concepts that I really like, which probably, you know, four or five of those are wide zone, three or four of those are power, two or three of those are miscellaneous or quarterback driven runs, 10 core pass concept and play action will be included in that. And then the in-between category, the other 10 are going to be screens, run pass options, combination plays, things like that, and then work from that core. And that takes us through Tuesday. Monday is a big work day for us. Tuesday is a big work day for us. It's based situations. By Wednesday, when we go to uh, create the third down menu and the red zone menu and the goal line menu. Hopefully a lot of that from Tuesday carries over. We have a pretty good idea of what we need to add, subtract, and delete by that point. So coach, obviously you gain a lot of insight and you have a process, a system for doing that. How do you translate that to your script and your practice plan and making sure that you have all those details that, that you need to get into practice taken care of? Having a, a format, Excel is really helpful. The GPS uh, model that you created was really helpful. It gave us a template to start with, which we've obviously modified somewhat. But I, I think having having a structure and what that serves for me is it forces me to narrow things down. Like it limits my inventory so I don't go into a game with too much. And so we have a pretty set format we use for repping our running game. We get a lot of carry. We do a period called live pass which is a blitz pickup, but we've integrated a lot more aspects into the live pass where the quarterback is actually making a throw and executing a read. So we get a lot more of our passing game covered that way than we would ordinarily. And then a lot of times we use Thursday as sort of our, we really front load our week. Thursday is pretty pretty light at this point, but by doing it that way, we give ourselves room. If we need to review or clean something up from Thursday, we can do that. And then the other thing that we do is we do a lot of, we do a lot of, of, of coaching off the video, which is probably not unusual, but we, we do a, we send a lot of corrections to the kid via huddle, a practice video, 
and that allows us to kind of uh, kind of vet things, if you will. At other times, we've done contingency periods. So we have three or four contingencies, I would say, that we always expect could show up any week, even if it's not on film. We have cover zero contingencies. We have double mug contingencies. We have bear contingencies. We have press man contingencies. And so some of that is built in even from camp on. The kids kind of know what our answers are. And if we feel like we need to brush it up on Thursday, we can. Uh, but those things stay pretty true throughout the year. Coach, the critical situations are, are the things we, we need sometimes to win those ball games. It's those plays, it's those calls that keep the chains moving on third down, or it's the calls that finish a drive. Looking back on the 2016 state championship season, what's one of those situations you can recall and exactly how did you approach it? What was your thought process and strategy for making that call? So one of the things that we always wrestle with is how much different in high school ball is your red zone offense than your open field offense. And I've probably overdone that at times uh, because a lot of high school defenses really don't change personality as much till inside the 10. And so I've done a lot of reflecting on that. And a lot of times I'll get into the flow of the game and I won't use my base down red zone calls at all. But one thing that has really helped us is having very specific conversion calls for a couple different areas of the red zone. And so the red zone can redefine itself based on your opponent and where they start changing. But for us, by and large, we're going to carry a third and medium, a third and goal from the five, a third and goal from the four, five, or six, a third and goal from the seven, eight, or nine, and then we'll have another specific call for third and long in the red zone, i.e. the 20 to the 10, and third and medium in the red zone, so that we can very aggressively go get it. And we will practice those calls probably three to four times from Wednesday to Thursday and even into a Friday pregame walkthrough. And so we're playing our, our rival in the state semifinals. Louisville St. Xavier is really well coached, and we did not not play our best ball that night by any means. They had a lot to do with that. But the game really ended up kind of turning on two of those calls. We had a third and nine, I want to say, from the 16. And there wasn't anything magical about the call. We took the best kid on the field. We isolated him away from quads and we threw a stop route and we scored. And then uh, we had a third and goal from the five. And same thing, we put the best kid on the field weak side and we threw a three-step. It was actually supposed to be a three-step naked and we ended up throwing the slant part to him for a touchdown. And I don't think it was anything magical about the calls, but the fact that we've kind of devoted ourselves to that philosophy got me to those calls very quickly and kept us in rhythm. And, and my boss is real big on rhythm and having the plays in on time because it affects the whole sort of mojo of your offense. Whereas in years past, I would have really scrambled to kind of come up with, a, with, with what's the perfect call for third and five on the six. But we just went right to it and it involved the best player and it involved something our kids were comfortable with. And the fact that we got touchdowns instead of field goals were really big there. We ended up winning the game, I think, 24-14. So it's easy to see if you're settling for field goals. It, it might have been a whole different night. Coach, we're going to shift gears here and go into a segment we call Lessons in Learning and try to go back through some sure. of your experiences here and figure out what lessons we can take from your learning. So let's go back to the beginning and think about you as a young coach. What mistake did you make as a young coach and what did you learn from it? I think for me, I mean, it connects to being a young coach, but it's it's more of an ongoing thing. I think that uh, there's a temptation to get so absorbed in the, especially when you're a coordinator and you're responsible for it all, but there's a temptation to get so absorbed in the technical parts of what you're doing that you lose sight of the leadership aspects of it and you lose sight of the, the people aspects of it. And so I still have to catch myself with this today, although I think I'm a lot more aware of it than I was, is that if I can't take a step back and have a 
pulse on my team because in the coordinator role, you're every bit as much of a leader as you are a technician. You set the tone, you create, you create the momentum, you you establish the expectations and teach people how to get there. And so if I'm just scripting and calling plays and not actively giving thought to how am I leading my coaches, how am I leading my men, uh, that's an issue. And if I'm so absorbed with getting the script done on time that I can't be aware of, you know, this running back, he's, he's in a world of hurt. His, his friend just got put in the hospital or, you know, what, what is it that I need to do to get more out of this receiver in terms of when he doesn't have the ball and what's the conversation I need to have with my left tackle. When I get away from those things, cause I'm so involved in what the third and two call is going to be, I think I've, I think I've missed it. And so I, that was a, big problem when I was younger and it's still something that I have to really work at and have good coaches around me who can kind of you know pull me back out of the rabbit hole at times. What's the best coaching advice you've received in your career? I mean there's a bunch of it and and I referred to a bit of it earlier from Dan as far as giving back to the profession. Another thing I heard from Dan that I, I don't really think I could absorb it at the time, but I get it more and more. One day we're in a staff meeting after we we had a bad game and he just looked at us and said, blame is ridiculous. Blame doesn't solve anything. And and so I've always tried to be mindful of that in terms of looking for solutions and how we can enlist all of our people and all of our coaches and all of our resources and solutions rather than worrying about exactly whose fault it was. That was really helpful. And I think the phrase that I've heard, and I don't know where I heard this from, but you hear it all the time is, you know, you get what you you demand and you get what you tolerate. That's always kind of guided me, you know, especially when when you're in a coordinator's position, the product you see on film is a direct reflection of of what you demanded uh, throughout the week, throughout camp, throughout all of it, and a direct reflection of what you allowed to go on unchecked and unconfronted. And I think just the simplicity of that is is really sobering and really important for me. What advice would you give a young coach looking to make it in this profession long term? Well, a couple things. The first thing is listen more than you think you should. I'm a terrible listener early in my career, and I alienated a lot of men that I could have learned a lot from if I hadn't been so self-assured and such a poor listener. Uh, I would say learn that, that every single person you work with and from offers you something, even if you couldn't possibly imagine yourself doing it the way that they uh, do it. And I've been in, you know, I've, I've coached as a position coach and even as a coordinator in systems that were not my cup of tea at all, but I learned a lot from those and I've I've been around coaches with a lot of different philosophies and I and, and I've learned a lot from them. Uh and if I missed those opportunities, uh, I, I would be a lot lesser for it. And I guess the other thing I would say is develop at least as much time and energy on your skill as a communicator and a teacher as you do time and energy learning the, the technical parts of the game. I, you know, I would never sell short the idea of uh, you know learning your craft and your craft but you should give equal attention to how you grow as a teacher and a communicator. Uh, and I heard this phrase, and I know it's kind of a phrase, right? So I'm not, I'm not bashing it, but I heard somebody talk about it on one of your podcasts. You know, people, they talk about how culture trumps scheme or uh, culture trumps technique. And I guess the thing that I would say, this is completely off topic, by the way, is that to me, that's a false dichotomy. I mean, to me, I want to be a part of a culture that wants to have the best of everything, you know, the best of how we care for each other, the best of how we practice, the best of how we learn, the best of how we hit. And so technique and scheme would fit seamlessly into the kind of culture that I would want. Um, I don't know that I would want to be in a culture that devalued scheme because scheme is all about giving your kids opportunities. Right. Anyway, those are 
things that I would share with a young coach if, if I got a chance. Coach, what's a book you've learned from that you would recommend to our listeners? You know, it's funny. Some of your earlier guests stole some of the best answers. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the Carol Dweck stuff on, on growth mindset is a really big one. Um, just in terms of how you – football is a game of failure, and if you don't understand how to um, process that failure and frame that failure – we talk about life lessons all the time. Most of life's lessons have to do with the fact that the world's really not fair, and you have to find a way to work productively within that. And um, and that's that football forces failure upon you every day, and so that's why I think the Carol Dweck book that um, I think Dan Gonzalez referenced was so important because it gives you a whole new framework for failure, just really being the fertilizer for growth. So that was important, I think, offensively speaking. They don't get much more important than Ryan Billick's book, just in terms of how you frame your own inventory and teaching and, and just really having a scientific approach to the game. I know that, you know, just the framework of, you know, the big four of explosives and turnovers and first down efficiency and third down efficiency, that's as true today as it was in 1998. Anything about Bill Walsh, anything by Bill Walsh, especially finding the winning edge are really, really important for, for me as well just because of how comprehensive it was in nature. Coach, what's something you've taken from a coaching clinic and implemented into what you do? The very first time I remember really being having my head spun by a clinic was uh, hearing Jim McNally talk about the drop step. And I didn't really exactly understand it at the time, but he made all the coaches in the Cincinnati ballroom we were in, he made all the coaches get up against the wall and practice leveraging the wall while taking a drop step so we would experience how much more you could get out of your hips by drop stepping. So that's certainly one thing. I think this is going to be probably a more general answer than you want, but something that's really helpful helpful for me is just understanding how how guys think. Uh, so, for example, um, especially defensive coaches. So, Jim Herman is a really, really tremendous teacher. I, I first bumped into him when I would use, used to go visit Lloyd Carter's staffs at Michigan. But he, he gave a talk one time where he talked about how they break down film and, and some of the reactive categories they have, like um, you know, what does an offensive coordinator do on second down after through an incompletion on first down. And just the whole notion of, of just learning how he is a defensive coach thinks and approaches the game that was incredibly helpful to me so sometimes it is specific schemes and tweaks i used to go to watch rob spence clinic all the time who's at chattanooga now uh, just watching him teach the screen game with this incredible passion and detail that had a big influence on me but but also just seeing how guys think and how how they perceive the game that helps me when i look at video imagine what the thought process is processes behind what I'm seeing on, on tape. As we approach this offseason, what's something you're excited to learn about and research? I always like watching Chris Peterson offenses, so I'm looking forward to, to seeing how he deals with Alabama's front four in the um, in the playoff, for sure. Just watching him in general. I'm always on the lookout for ways people are integrating their, their screen game. We, we try to grow our, our screen game every year. I don't have a particular type of screen I'm looking for other than I've just what little bit I've seen of the Falcons really intrigues me with what they're doing with the screen game. So, so we want to expand that. You know, like everybody else, I'll be interested to see where the whole RPO world goes. We have invested in it. We haven't. We haven't. Dot. We have not um, sort of submerged. 
submerged ourselves head first. It seems like every time we successfully call one, we get called for an illegal guy down the field. So it's a little scary to me because of how much variation there is from crew to crew, uh, at least in Kentucky. But uh, obviously, I think you have to keep your finger on that uh, pulse as well. And I'm also real interested to see what defensive coaches are going to, like the Vikings, are going to continue to do with the 4-2 double mug, double A gap stuff. I think that's a that's a trend that's going to make its way into high school real soon, and, and I want to make sure I'm on top of that. What's your favorite piece of coaching technology or something you're you're looking forward to trying out in your workflow? Kind of got a little bit of the old school and the new school. PowerPoint continues to be very important for us. Excel is incredibly important for us in organizing our work, but the um, the virtual reality part, and I heard you talk about Go Army Edge, is uh, is really something that I want to take a look at just because, you know, at a place like ours, it's been a lot of years since I've had a returning quarterback. You know, at a, at a big school setting like ours, a good tradition, a lot of times it's, you're going to be playing a senior quarterback. is true this year. is true last year. It's true the year before. And so we have to find ways to um, accelerate the reps and accelerate the learning process. And obviously people are doing some great things with virtual reality. How do you create balance with the passion you have for this game and all it demands, as well as giving that time that's necessary for family, faith, your health, etc.? You know, that you, you actually just probably asked the right question And in terms of that really should have been my advice for young coaches because I think the first thing to, to kind of come to grips with is that it's going to be an ongoing wrestling match. I, I don't think there's a once-and-for-all answer. And I've done, I've done real damage to important people in my own life because of failing at exactly that. And, and then, of course, you go through the cycle. It's almost like an addict of, well, I'll never do that again. And then you find yourself slipping into the same trends. You know, my wife and I, we, we talk at the end of every year in terms of what are the things that we're doing well as a family, where are ways that we can, um, you know, where are ways that we're not doing as well? What changes do we need to make? And we, we have those conversations as a family. I think I've done a little better each year about being more present. Once I do get home, you have to force yourself to invest in people around you. The biggest mistakes I've made has been when I've taken it all on myself, like the whole world depended on me getting everything right, and you just can't do that. You have to invest in people and then delegate to them and, and trust that they'll do what you're asking them to do, uh, or it becomes really distorted really really quickly. So that's important. Uh, time management's important. That's something that I, I always wrestle with. I just think it's an ongoing battle. And, and I don't I don't know that there's one final answer and I would be a little leery of somebody that said that they that they had it all figured out. But it is important to me and I do want, you know, we got two little babies right now. We had, we adopted a little girl this time last year and we have a little foster son that are both under two. And, uh, and assuming I am still in this profession in, in 15 years, I don't want them to feel like uh, they got my leftovers you know and um so i don't know you should ask me that question this time next year <laughs> and hopefully i'm about 10 percent better at it next year than i am this year well it's always a process it's something we got to learn from so thanks for sharing what you've yes. learned with us thus far uh i don't know that anybody has the the complete answer but i know it's uh it's one that all of us struggle with in this profession because it is so demanding what concerns do you have right now for the future of our game and what ideas do you have that 
address those issues. You know, I liked what Kevin Kelly said. I think we've got a, everything in our world right now is message management, and we we have to deliver the message on our terms because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of message out there that has partial truth and half truth. But if people yell it loud enough, often enough on enough social media platforms, it has a strange way of morphing into truth. So I think we have to find a way to. Um, I think all of us owe the game to know what the facts are and to present the facts at every turn and to demonstrate that we are putting the young men first at every turn. Um, and not that any of us are perfect at that, but uh, I think the concussion protocols are, are important and they're helpful. The, the shoulder tackling emphasis is important and helpful. I think we have to kind of have um, open hands to what to what might have to be next, whether it involves something with special teams or whatever, uh, to keep the game flourishing. I, I think what, what you mentioned earlier about youth coaching is really, really important because uh, sometimes I see some of the things that happen with third and fourth graders in pads and and I would you know I'm I'm not sure I want uh, my little boy to be involved in that myself so I think that's a concern I also think just the the quality and quantity of officiating is a concern it's a concern at our level we played in a state championship game that was incredibly poorly officiated and and could have been really costly in a lot of ways because of how poorly officiated not not wins and losses but the whole experience was not what it should have been because we're not getting the same quality and quantity of guys and I think we need to treat those guys better and incentivize them and do what we can to ensure the highest quality product is is on the field officiating wise. So those would be a couple things right off the top of my head. Coach, we're going to speed it up in this next segment, our two-minute drill. Just some quick question and answers on some various football topics. So we'll start with this. Schematically, what's the toughest defense to face? A a 3-4 two-gapping defense with um, multiple pressures and coverage. What's your favorite goal line play? Probably, probably, I mean, wide zone. Wide zone's been tried and true for a long time. We haven't really topped that one yet. Turf or grass? If, <laughs> if, if I don't have to maintain it, <laughs> uh, and and practice is not an issue. Gra- like on a one game basis, so give me a well manicured grass field. But in terms of having to live with it day in and day out, uh, the convenience of it, turf. There's nothing like a good grass field, man. Favorite backfield set? Probably one back. Probably uh, we still go under center quite a bit, but probably one back under center just because, or one back uh, pistol just because we have a, a pretty full range of what we want to do offensively out of that. Day game or night. Game. Night game. If you had to run your offense from one formation, what would it be? Oh, you don't know how incredibly sad I would be, but um, <laughs> probably uh, probably two tight ends as a tight end wing set to the boundary with a slot to the field. Here, I'll, I'll add this on to you to give you a cheat on it with lots of shifts and motions, right? Oh, yeah. But, of course, they, based on your constraint, we, they would always know where we're going to end up. So. <laughs> That wouldn't help me. What's your favorite quote? I guess the one that that we have probably lived off of the most that helps us connect with our kids the most is just, all the win is is meaningless without the will to prepare. So I think that I think the preparation ethic that's kind of contained in that quote is incredibly central to who we try to be. Should the kickoff be eliminated? Uh, I'm not there yet. I, I'm not there yet. Um, but yeah, I, if that's what they decide that we have to, I mean, if that's what they decide that we have to do, then I, I wouldn't fight it very hard. But to, I, I'm not. 
at the point of advocating that. If you could pick one football coach from the past, either retired or no longer with us, to learn from, who would it be? I think Bob Latticer, because I think if you're going to talk about culture and you're going to talk about trying to have the lasting impact of really the big picture of what we're trying to do just beyond winning, the guy who won without ever talking about winning, uh, I know there's a lot of material out on him now, but that's that's someone that I would certainly like to talk to. How about one from the present? Here's a funny one for you. I would want to talk to Brad Stevens. To me, Brad Stevens is is maybe my favorite coach in all of sports. Period with the Celtics. I, I I just love the fact that he's he's not afraid to be himself. He's demanding, but it's it's within his personality, and I I, I think he's fascinating. Extremely down to earth. Obviously, that would be my choice. How many teams should be included in the FBS playoff? Uh, there should be six. There should be the five conference champions should go. So the conference championships uh, serve as de facto play-in games, and then you should have one uh, additionally. They're at large, the next best team, like um, like a Michigan or I don't know about Penn, but somebody like that that they can argue about that all they want. But the top <laughs> two speeds uh, get the week off. But I think the thing you have to do if you're going to do that is you have to eliminate some of these divisional imbalances, like the Big Ten East. You know, the the two best teams and being one. Kind of division in the, in the Big Ten and the three best in the ACC. I think you would have to rework that a little bit. But I, I would like, like, I didn't think that conference champions should automatically be in or out this year. I would just like a system where those games had that kind of tangible drama. You know, sure. All things being equal, run it or throw it. Uh, I say run the football, and I say that because I think the heart. The, the thing that's really underrated in high school ball is high school offensive linemen pass protecting is risky business now, especially if you have accomplished pass rushers on the other side. Uh, I think running the ball is the surest way to get there. Good job on the two-minute drill, Coach. Here's the final question. And you've experienced this. You've been at the pinnacle with your teams a number of times now with, with a state championship. So what's the one thing you would point to as giving your team's uh, your units, the winning edge. I think there, and, and people in Kentucky won't like to hear this because our alumni bang the drums about it so much that it creates resentment. But I, I think that our kids' willingness and buy-in and capacity for work in the summer when the season is far, far away. Um, I, when I went and coached at a, a very well-established public school in, in Indiana as a head coach for three years and took basically the roots of our uh, the the, root, the, found, the fundamentals of our summer program at, at Trinity there, I was told it was inhumane. And, and I know everybody works hard, but I think the capacity that our kids have to do the lifting, to do the speed development, to do the football work, to do the study outside of time, I mean, they're spending four or five hours a day. There's a lot that goes into, there, there's a lot of other things that go into it, but, but that creates a foundation that gives us a chance to make everything else work. Uh, and I'm honestly, when I see what our kids do, even in the end season, I'm really in awe. I mean, they're, they're getting to school at seven 30. A lot of times they get a full academic load. They have a, they have a practice, they have a lift, they have a film session, they're home at seven 30 and they've still got a homework. I mean, I know a lot of programs can say the same thing. I, I just, I have immense respect for the sacrifice and the efforts of our young men on what they're willing to do. And so 
without that, I think a lot of this other stuff wouldn't wouldn't really matter. Coach, how do our listeners connect with you? I'm on Twitter. I think it's just Andrew Coverdale. And then my email address is my full name, Andrew Coverdale, and then at gmail.com. Coach, as always, I appreciate talking ball with you. Thank you for taking the time to be on the show, and I look forward to talking more ball with you in the future. You bet. Thanks, Keith. It's been a blast. 